one. Okay. All right. The highly detailed outline I've provided for you is for the purpose of helping you to keep up. I have decided to break very briefly from the Romans review, both because I believe that by having some additional time to chop down some of the stuff that it will be far more retainable and useful, and because of the fact that I believe that there is a providential place right now where it would be very helpful to do an overview and review of the dominion mandate and the way in which that relates to our roles in the church and in our households and to be reminded of the beauty of it. Uh, there is, of course, we have the delight of having a wedding coming up and so thinking about marriage and children and building of households, but also thinking about how households and individuals relate to the church. And so I hope that this is something that will be a blessing to you. So please turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 7. I will not be reading these texts and then commenting through them. I will simply be commenting through them as we go through them. So chapter 2, verse 7. We have here, this is, uh, obviously we have the the creation of man here and the dominion mandate given. So I'm I'm skipping over creation. And so we are are here. um, We're given a Sabbath day for rest and six days to work after the example of God. And we get to chapter 2, verse 7. It says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. We are reminded here of the two components of man, the dust and the breath of life. We have material bodies and we have spirits. Man is dichotomous, not trichotomous, not quadricotomous, not however else you'd go forward in that list. It is important that we recognize that there are two components of man, the body and the rational soul. And so those things, that's... We are different from the angels because we have a body added. We are different from the beasts of the field because we have rational souls. We are the image of God. And so, there's the two components. Verse 8, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put the man whom He had formed. The garden is in the midst of wilderness, The garden is a subdued place. Man is put into subdued place. Man is to order, to manage the creation, to put things into position. The exercise of dominion is the rule over the creation. And God gave us a starter kit. He gave us a garden. And he said, subdue all that wilderness. Take all the wildlife preserves and make them into cities. Now, those are to be garden cities. They are to be beautiful, they are to be delightful, and they are to be privately owned because we have a man and a woman. We don't have the woman yet, but we have a man made, and here he is given dominion as man. Man is man, not man as the state, not man as the church. Man is man. The Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So God made pleasantness and beauty in the creation for our enjoyment. And He made it good for food so it has nourishment. So both the enjoyment, the beauty, the pleasantness, and secondly, its nutritional value, its utility. There's a priestliness and a kingliness to it. We are to enjoy the beauty as priests, the beauty of holiness. And we're to enjoy the goodness and usefulness of it as kings. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, a river went out of Eden to to water the garden. This is an interrupter. It's a really weird interrupter. Okay, let's let's think about this for a second. We've just been told about the tree of life. We've been told about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These are two different trees. There's authorization to eat of one and not of the other. There's authorization to eat of the trees generally. 
Eve is going to later notice the similarity by pleasantness of sight, the goodness for food, and the, according to Satan later, utility for knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the similarity of the pleasantness of sight and the goodness for food. Notice utility is not the basis of what we should eat or shouldn't eat. It's not the basis of what we should do or shouldn't do. Utility does not make a thing moral. Notice that pleasantness does not make a thing moral. Just because something is pleasant to the eyes does not make it moral. Just because we think it might give us useful experiences, which is Eve's principal argument that she adopts from Satan, that we'll see down the line, that doesn't make it moral. Okay, so there's a similarity that the things that we're authorized to use, they have a pleasantness, they have a utility to them. And there's plausible arguments for pleasantness and utility to all sorts of sin. Those are not the determiners of good and evil. We have the tree of life. It's a sacrament. It's a sign. It's a covenant symbol. Okay, It is something that is not in itself able to give life, but it is a symbol to give life. The tree of life is a symbol. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is also a covenant symbol. And so it is what is not to be eaten of. So these are the signs of the covenant that are given there. These are the signs of the covenant of works. Do this and live. Verse 10, Now a river went out of Eden to the water of the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is, one which, it is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Notice the first resource outside of the garden that God points to, gold. God made gold for money. That's what he made it for. It's useful. It's at the end of a trade network that God pre-built. Rivers are largely the mechanisms by which cheap transport can occur in a pre-industrial society. They are pre-made places for being able to settle. They are fresh water conduits. You can eat fish, you can drink water, you can move quickly. They provide communication, they provide transportation. Moving things by land when you do not have the internal combustion engine is ridiculously hard and expensive. When you move things on water, it is easy. It is cheap. It's fast. God made a take-over-the-world highway network pointing towards the four points of the compass, leaving the garden. Starter kit. So God's starter kit. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it parted and became four river heads. Now where does water go? Does the water uh, go uphill or downhill? No, downhill. There's four rivers that leave get Eden and they go downhill. So Eden's a mountain. Eden's a mountain. Because okay, you have the directions, all four directions, you have water going out. So that means, weirdly, you have water coming from the top of a mountain. Unless there's an ice cap in the middle of Eden, that means there's a flow of water coming up. And it's departing, going out. So if that's the case, what we have is we have this set of rivers that leave, that provide water, and this water, as it leaves, is going to be pushing out these rivers, and it goes towards resources. So there's gold. Notice gold is viewed as a resource before the fall. Money is not evil. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money is valuing money above God. It's viewing it as the good. That's the problem there. So pre-fall society still has exchange of goods by the very nature of finitude. And the gold of that land is good. Objective statement of good. We've, if you've read the earlier parts of Genesis, you'll hear all sorts of stuff about it. And it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. This fits in that pattern. It's good. Gold's good. Money's good. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. So onyx and bedellium, these are other resources. These have utility. So we're talking about dominion tasks. I'm not going to spend as much time on all the resources. But the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. (coughs) The name of the third river is Hittikel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates.
So we have these rivers. Now these names are names of territories in a pre-flood world, so the geography was dramatically altered after the flood, but we have these names. Notice people use these names after the flood. It's sort of like how you have New York or previously New Amsterdam, right? You have these names where you take something that you have some sort of familiarity or history with and you put that name on there, and so you call it that place. Now, um, there is a taking of those names. The rivers also, also would obviously uh, be dramatically altered by the flood. So these names of rivers go back to the pre-flood world. Verse 15, Then the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Tend is to work, to cultivate, to nurture, to positively build. This is the constructing aspect. This is the making of things. This is the trowel. This is when you put stuff together, edify so the making, the positive additions, adding to the gains and keeping, guarding, maintaining, defending, preserving, stopping the loss. This is the sword. And so there's this tending and keeping, tending and keeping. There's a building and guarding that there's a call to. Why call to build and to fight before the fall? Well, Satan had fallen. Adam was put there, put in the garden, and he's called to build and to fight. And there's a duty to defend the garden even when Adam is not sinful. And so this duty to keep it, to nurture, maintain, those are the two sides. 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Universal freedom there to eat of all the trees. But, here's the exception, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's the negative side of the covenant of works. You have do this and live, tree of life represents the positive there, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil fail to obey and die. There's a covenant Covenants are life and death promises. They are oaths, they're bonds, they're connecting obligations, they're bonds, and they have a life or death value. They're in blood. Bonds in blood. And guess who imposes them? God. They are sovereignly administered. Marriage is a covenant. In that covenant, two parties enter in. They voluntarily enter in. But they don't define the nature of the covenant. God defines it. Between one man and one woman, the man is to be the leader, the woman is to submit, the man is to be Christ to the woman, in that he is to lay down his life to care for her, to nurture her, to protect her. And the woman is to obey the man as Christ, as the church obeys Christ. Does that mean that his word is law over Christ's? No. But insofar as he has an authority to make up rules, as long as they're not sin, he can. He can say, I want dinner at 5 o'clock. that in the word of God? No. Is that within his authority? Yes. It's a good work to eat. And there's a need to set a time to do it. And so these are useful to the end. Eighteen, and the Lord God said, "It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. A help meet is the way the King James has it. A helper that's fit for him. A helper that is of the same nature. And what is she to help in? Well, what's his work? Someone who doesn't have a mission doesn't need a helper, right? So, what's the mission that God has given to man?" To tend and to keep the garden. What's the garden? Garden is civilized space, not wilderness. Garden is area that is, there's covenant duties there. Garden is the space where you can have good things come out of dominion work. It is a temple where man dwells and where God dwells. Where there is no civilization, there is no church. If there are no people living there and there are only jackals in the field, there are no people for the Holy Spirit to indwell. So the filling of space with people, houses, 
farms, gardens, industry, transportation networks, and mines to get the gold. That stuff makes it so that there is a place for the church to dwell. Civilization is for the church. And even if the wicked pile up silver like mountains, it's for the church. They're making the space for us. Now, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. This is the general rule. This is why I say, if you don't have a very clear call to singleness, a very consistent ability to contain sexual desire, if you are not a eunuch, Right? One of those two things, and in order to, by the way, be called a singleness, you not only need to be able to contain yourself, but you need to also say, I have some work that is worth not taking a wife and having children. What do you have to do that's better than taking a wife and having children? Okay, You devote yourself to do that. That's where the call of singleness exists. In general, the general rule where there needs to be demonstration of an exception, the general rule, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. There's too much work to do. The division of labor is good. Having more people, children, is good. And so God makes a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. So all the animals are helpers. They're not helpers comparable to Adam. They are not good counselors. You can get a parrot to say the same thing back to you that you said. It will not give you critical analysis of it. And so if you can get an animal sometimes to parrot something back to you, it's not simply the sound of speech, it's the reasoning, it's the thinking, it's the thoughtfulness, it's being a rational creature, it's being the image of God. And so the woman, as the image of God, is distinct from all of the material help that oxen, horses, and donkeys can give. She can think. She can't carry as heavy of a load as a donkey. She can't plow as well as oxen. She can't run as fast as horses. She can think. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Now the naming of things is a sign of authority and it also is categorization, right? So we have Adam here. He's taking all the raw material, animals, and he's categorizing them and sorting them like tools. That's what they are to him. These animals are tools. He goes over here. I've got a ply and a pry. And over here, I've got a hammer. Right? And so these are the tools. These animals have different utility. Look at the ox and it seems like that thing could probably pull some weight. You look at these animals. There's utility in the animals. The utility is going to change as his technology advances. Do you think Adam knew right away he could make glue from horses? No. Probably took him at least 10 minutes to figure that one out. He looks sticky. Now, the utility of animals changes over time. And that is based upon the advancement of technology. Horses have a very different use to us now than they did 200 years ago. And so we think about the utility of animals, for the glory of God, and it differs based upon our technological condition. So the categorization is based upon the kinds that God has made and their usefulness at the time. So he gave names. But he didn't see any of them as one that he could call a helper comparable to himself. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. Maybe he got his hopes up with the parrot very briefly. Said his name back to him. Realized quickly the conversation was going nowhere. Verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib 
which the Lord God had taken from man, he, was, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Notice, so bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's a statement of family. It's a family kinship statement. It's a statement about being the same material. It's a statement about closeness. Matthew Henry's famous comment about the rib is, woman was not taken from the foot to be dominated, nor taken from the head to rule, but from the rib to be a helper who is at his side. And so there's a fellowship and a companionship. Now, that we don't want to take that to the extent of a complete egalitarianism. We know that in marriage, the husband is the head. He rules. That's very clear in the scriptures. At the same time, that rule is not a superiority of essence. The Father does not rule over the Lord Jesus Christ because his divinity is superior to Jesus' divinity. He rules because of covenant. The Father and the Son do not command the Holy Spirit to go forth because the Holy Spirit is less God than they. The command goes forth because of covenant. So the woman is not under man by any inferiority of nature, any lesser state of essence, anything about womanhood that makes the woman less than man. The woman is under man because that is the law order that God has given. Now, the other thing I want to state here is that it is generally conceded that women are more beautiful than men. We think about this and the fact that women are beautifiers, that they are, we are told that they're the weaker vessel. So what we consider here is the fact that whereas man is taken from the dust, woman is taken from man. Man is glorified dust and woman is glorified man, beautified man. And so men are to protect women. Men are to protect women. We are called to protect the beautiful. We are called to protect that which is the weaker vessel. There is a need to do that. And so the submission and the protection are beautiful working together. Women, you can destroy your own beauty and destroy the excellence of manhood if you refuse the submission of worthy men in stations of authority. You can also ruin the holiness of your submission by submitting to every man rather than submitting to your husband or your father. You are called to submit to one head of house. It's not a general submission to men. It's a, it's a submission to your patriarch. Now, men, we can be lazy and fail to defend, fail to guard. Let me tell you something. It's a culturally relevant thing that we need to be ready for. If the federal government calls to conscript our women, we have to say no and be willing to shoot back. I'm telling you that right now. If we don't say no and be willing to shoot back to stop them from stealing our women, we are not men. So just that's the line in the sand. So I need you to be ready for that. It's a basic creation obligation. We do not allow Caesar to take the women and put them into combat. So conscription of women must be resisted. There's a slavery of conscription that's not legitimate in all cases. It can be a call to people to assemble in cases, but conscription is in stealth and enslaving for a period of time. And so it is not a lawful command in general, but in particular with women, we don't just have the right to resist, we have the obligation to resist to stop it. So, we think about this, God made the woman out of man made beautiful this part of the man and the response of Adam is poetry this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man in Hebrew the word woman is isha and the word man is ish and so you notice there that connection the feminine version of man ish isha woman is an, it is a great word English is, is really good there man woman Right, the way in which woman comes out of man is communicated there in the English well. And so, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God explains here 
that there is a leaving of the household. We have the institution of marriage and the institution of the household right here. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man leaves his father and mother. The man is under the authority of the father and mother as a part of the household until he leaves. The man leaves the father and mother. That means he leaves that household and is no longer under the father and mother authority. And he's joined with his wife. This is an act of secession from a household to establish a new household. And it establishes a new authority. And the joining to the wife is the covenanting. The joining to the wife is the covenanting. And they shall become one flesh. Now legally they become one flesh by the covenanting. And there's a sign of that union. And that sign is sex. Which is beautiful. And made by God. For pleasure. And for the nurturing of the soul of the husband and wife. And of the relationship. And just like the trees of the knowledge of good and evil, just pleasure and just a sense of usefulness and just some sort of experience that we want to gain does not justify its use outside of its proper place. Sex is the sign of marriage. It is the seal of marriage. It is a covenant symbol. It's not a sacrament because it's not a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. But it's a sign and seal of the marriage covenant. And so to put it any place else is to profane that sign. And at the same time, to use that sign in marriage is beautiful, holy, clean, and good. And so we see, because of the one fleshness, verse 25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and we're not ashamed. There's nobody else around. But if there had been anybody else around, it wouldn't have been sin at that point to be naked. But the nakedness is shown for its place in marriage. And so we need to avoid looking upon the nakedness of other people. We need to preserve our chastity. And we need to be careful whether we're married or not married to avoid looking upon the nakedness of anybody that we are not married to. Or to whom we don't have some duty of care. A doctor might have to look upon your nakedness. You have to look at your child's nakedness to care for your child, especially when they are very young. You will see them naked a lot. And so there is this duty of care sometimes to deal with it, but the general rule is to be careful about that. Chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, As God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. We have established for us the beauty of the marriage relationship, the beauty of the garden, all of these things, everything here worth protecting, and now the enemy comes in. Will Adam keep? Will he defend? Will he guard the garden and his garden, his wife? Will he tend to both? Will he protect them? Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? There's a question about the word of God. There's a twisting of the word of God. And so that happens. The questioning of the word of God is a challenge. And this challenge is meant to destroy the covenantal institutions of the individual, the household, the church, and the state. Satan wants to destroy them all, kill them all, break them all down into the proper use of any of them. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat. The fruit of the trees of the garden. Correcting one challenge. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it. Correcting by putting out the truth. Nor shall you touch it. Oof. An addition to the word of God. Did Adam fail his prophet here and give an additional thing? That would have been sin. It would have already been a fall. Did he fail to... Lay out for her the clarity of not adding to that. There could be a a sin of neglect there, or it could be an adding or inventing on her part. And so we have here unbelief, a failure to believe, and adding to the Word of God, and this (coughs) weakness will be taken advantage of to destruction. There is no forbidding of the touching of that tree. But then there's this right statement of the lest you die. Not eating of it, lest you die. So the touching of it was added 
and we have a failure there that results in a first step to touch, which doesn't result in death, followed by the eating. Verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of, your eye, eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve already knew good and evil. They knew they shouldn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was evil. And they knew that they should eat of the other trees, and they should keep and tend the garden. Those were commands to do good. They already had a knowledge of good and evil. What's the difference between the knowledge of good and evil, eating the tree versus not eating the tree? It's knowing good and evil like God. The day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's not that they don't know good and evil, and God does. It's that they will now know good and evil in the same way that God does. How does God know good and evil? Does God know good and evil because someone taught it to him? No. Did God figure it out? No. God defined it. He defines good and evil. And as the definer of good and evil, he is God. God defines good and evil. The definer of good and evil is God. If you want to define good and evil, if you want to make up the definitions, if you want to just do whatever you want, that is your desire to be God. That is lawlessness. It is self-rule. It is being a law to yourself. It is autonomy. Autos, Greek for self. Namos, Greek for law. Autonomy, self-law, a law to yourself. There's the rejection of God as God. The rejection of God as God is the rejection of God as the definer of good and evil. The rejection of God's law is that which tells us what is good and evil We know good and evil from the law of God. God knows good and evil because he is good and he defines evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, utility, that it was pleasant to the eyes, pleasure, and a tree desirable to make one wise, there's the useful experience, She took of its fruit and ate. She believed something. She believed her experience. She believed her sense experience. She believed a false prophet. And she was deceived by her own false doctrine. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. What? What was he doing? Did he grab the first sharp stick that he had made? that he thought might be useful for making some sort of line in the ground and stab the serpent? Did he guard? (coughs) No. He watched as this serpent defiled the garden, defiled his wife, destroyed his own rule, and used what he loved to pull him into allegiance with wickedness. If you do not, men, guard the church, guard the world, guard yourselves, guard your households, everything you work for will be used as a bribe by Satan. Everything you think is good, everything you spend time on, unless you guard it from evil and defend it from profanation and make it so that it's a holy thing, devoted to God, that the word of God is posted upon the door, If you don't rule it and guard it, it will be taken from you and used to draw you to wickedness. And so we are called to lead in marriage and to guard. If you see someone, you see your wife, you see your children going into evil, you stop it. You stop it early. (coughs) You pick that fight. You cannot be relied upon to guard against the wolves unless you are willing to make your wife unhappy so that you can make her more happy. So the willingness to say no and to draw lines in the sand, same with your children. 
You have children. They want lots of things that you don't want them to have. Men and women, you are obligated to guard your children to keep them from wickedness, to make sure that they are not drawn in. And you say no early to prevent the forming of strong affections. When there are strong affections, you pull hard, separate from the thing that a wicked affection has been made toward. And so that willingness to guard, to fight, to stop, saves from much destruction. Man took and he ate. It was given. This language of taking and giving, by the way, is and eating is, is very sacramental. We give the bread. Take the elements, cut them apart, give. Right? There's this there's a praying for blessing, there's a word of institution to, to set it apart and make it holy. But this taking and giving, this is a sort of perverse or satanic sacrament right now that we're reading about. This idea of seeking the knowledge of good and evil by defining it. Right? Satanism actually one of the you know, the great commandment there, it's do what thou wilt. And that's that's a great capturing of this doctrine. Do what you will. Why? Because you're God. You're the definer of good and evil. So every time we sin, we're basically doing that. And so the importance of this, of maintaining and guarding, cannot be overstated. So he fails. He eats. He is subverted. He listens to his wife. He doesn't speak to intervene. He listens to the serpent. An animal speaks to the woman. The woman speaks to the husband as opposed to the husband commanding, the woman obeying, the woman ruling over the animal. Right? This is this total twisting of the order of things. The serpent is Satan. The serpent, a dragon. You see these things throughout. You see in Revelation, we talk about dragon. Right? You have, you have this, this idea of the Existence of demonic power taking physical form. And this is the mockery of Satan, of God's order. And the eyes of both of them were open. Verse 7, and they grew, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. This is the covering of, of their own shame by their own self-righteousness. They're trying to find a way of covering their own shame. Um, and now we have coverings. What your clothes are, your clothes are a constant reminder of the fact that you need mediation between yourself and God. We are not naked now. And the reason we are not naked now is because of the shamefulness of ourselves in ourselves. And so we need covering. And wearing clothing is a reminder of the fact that we need a covering. We need Christ since the fall. And so what does God do? He's going to provide a covering, not of fig leaves, not of our self-righteousness, but he provides the skins of animals to cover Adam and Eve. He gives them tunics of animal skins, which remind us that that animal is dead. I don't know about you, but I'm, my, my impression is that if you take all the skin off of an animal, it dies. So that animal, those animals, were, they're dead. And their skin was given as a covering. Animal sacrifice was instituted there. Okay, so we'll see that towards the end of chapter 3 here. So the clothing, self-righteousness to cover Verse 8, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the wind of the day, the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Right, this hiding is a way of trying to hide the offense. So there's self-righteousness, the hiding of the offense. Let's, let's cover it up. And then... God seeks out the lost and calls back the lost. Where are you? Did God know where Adam was? God so easily tricked by fig leaves and shrubbery. Is thermal imaging more effective than God?
So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Right? Fear, afraid, nakedness, shame. Fear and shame are where we cover stuff up. If you cover stuff up out of fear and shame and maintain a self-righteousness, that's a great way to have really brittle relationships. If you want a marriage to fail, be self-righteous towards your husband or towards your wife and cover up all of your sins. Don't admit fault out of a fear of the consequences and a desire to avoid shame. You want a relationship to not be brittle? Use the fear of the Lord to cause you to repent and to give your shame to Him. Knowing that Christ has paid for it, has made provision for it, has dealt with the shame. Confession is the opposite of covering up. Resolving conflict quickly and early rather than a brittle self-righteousness and covering up. God said, who told you that you were naked? Notice how the next question is, God is asking questions in a way that's meant to draw out confession of sin. Oh, nakedness. That's an interesting thought. How did that pop into your mind? Have you eaten from the tree? which I commanded you that you should not eat? That maybe what happened? Notice the, the way that this is like a parent to a child. Is it maybe possible that you broke the rule I gave you? Is that maybe how this happened? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. There's sort of blame shifting and confessing. Yes, but it was the woman, which, by the way, you kind of gave to me. So think about that, God. Whose fault is this really? And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. I did, and yes, I gave it to him, but the serpent, and God, I think you probably made the serpent, so maybe your fault still. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. Curse in response to sin. Does God intend to redeem the serpent? He does not. This curse is an abiding curse on Satan. And it's a growing curse. It will grow forever. He will be cursed, and then he will be bound, and then he will be cast into a pit, and then he will be released to allow for a very short rebellion, and then he will be judged, and he will receive even worse than everything he's gotten so far. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. This serpent is going to be on his belly, which is going to be a low position. Oh, you're arrogant, you're haughty, you want to raise yourself against God? We're going to make it as low as is physically possible. Now, also, that's an excellent position to be easily stomped upon. You're going to eat dust. Another hint at the position. When you eat dust, it means you're behind somebody else who's going faster, kicking up dust, right? The eating of dust here is an indicator of being behind the man, which is Satan hates the fact that man is going to be over the angels. And so, the eating of dust behind the man all the days of your life. And he's going to chomp. He's going to bite at the heels of man. He will seek to destroy the seed of the woman. He will seek to destroy the church. He will seek to destroy the promised seed of the Messiah. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. You're going to hate the woman and she's going to hate you. And the woman here, we have 
the idea in particular of the church, and between your seed and her seed. So Satan's going to hate the church, he's going to destroy the church, and between the children of the church and the seed of Satan, the reprobate and the elect, but in particular Christ and Satan. The seed of the woman is an indicator, a promise of Christ, because normally you talk about the seed of the man, this is a weird use of language. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The word bruise there is fine. Crush is better. Crushing of the head, and the crushing of the heel. When a venomous snake crushes your heel, and they're in a time where there's no anti-venoms, what happens to you? You die. So, in killing, crushing Satan, the seed will have his heel crushed. He will die. So, he will conquer and die. And we know he'll be raised again. He is raised again. He is risen. Now, there's that promise. That's the first giving of the gospel. Genesis 15. What we have is law. We have failure. We have curse. We have condemnation. And then we have the gospel. Good news. The grace of God. Salvation offered, provided, given. And to the woman he said, Notice, by the way, also, there was a promise of the children of, women, of, of the woman. Just a second. The day you eat thereof, you will surely die. I'm going to have kids? Very short gestation period. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. Okay, the, the, the sorrow that comes in the terms of having children. The process of having children and rearing children, there's going to be sorrow in it. There's going to be strife that exists in that relationship. There's going to be pain. There's going to be a difficulty in having and raising children. That's rough because women are particularly priestly. They are focused upon the relationship. They're made to be helpers. And so there's a desire to help someone in particular. And having difficulty in the relationship with children is very painful. It could make it even so that, and just imagine, imagine a culture where women thought it was maybe not worth having children. Imagine a culture where women thought, you know what, instead of having children, I'm going to not have children, and I'm just going to try to do all of the things that men do. I'm going to be a magistrate and a pastor, and I'm going to just do all the things that men do, and I'm going to avoid having children. Await. That is our culture. So what has happened here is this is buying into the idea of the uselessness of that work because of how painful it is and how it doesn't seem fruitful. If you don't guard your children, if you don't nurture your children, then it will be horrifyingly painful and fruitless. So many parents don't like their kids. You send your kids to public school. It's going to help them to learn how to not be likable. It will teach them to copy fools. It will teach them how to deal with godless teachers and to take in the knowledge from them. And it will make it so that you are not around them very much to be able to interact and to be able to train. And so there is this general state where parents and children, their hearts are turned away from each other. And so giving a Christian education is one of the things we promise to our children and so, in having a Christian education, and in raising up your children, in using the rod, in training them up, showing them the way that they should go, guarding them from evil, keeping them from foolish companions, sheltering them. What, what does sheltering mean? Sheltering is you provide shelter, you provide cover to protect things that are worth protecting. When should children not be sheltered? When they're adults. The process of catechizing children and preparing them is the training them up in a very sheltered way to help them to learn what they should do teaching them the truth and keeping them from error and then you gradually expose them to the evil of the world and you train them how to deal with it in controlled ways they get overwhelmed <coughs> cut it back off help them to be strong re-expose them that's the process that's how you avoid having your children be alienated from you. 
is the gradual exposing, cutting back off, exposing, giving strength, increasing. You are opening and closing the gates to increase and decrease the amount that they have to deal with the world. And your goal is to make sure that they can go do it on their own without your protection when they go and start their own home. You want to make that as early as possible. So the multiplying of sorrow and conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be toward your husband or for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now that desire is for your husband. There's a thing in Genesis 4 where it says that sin's desire is for you. Okay? What that means is this desire is to rule over you, to have dominion over you. So what's the general tendency of women? The desire of women is for women to rule over their man rather than to be ruled over. There's this desire to rule over the man. And what happens is there is a response of the man. At a certain point, the man gets tired of it. And the response of the man is to have a cruel dominion over the woman. A throwing off of biblical patriarchy, both in society and on an individual level, results in a domineering hyper-patriarchy. The reaction to the feminism of our culture will not be pretty, and it will not be women's liberation. And in fact, you already see it. The objectification of women the commoditization of women. People literally pay women to carry their children for them now. The commoditization of women is increasing rather than the humanization of women in response to feminism. The structures of Western civilization to have Christian patriarchy were the things that made it so that the weaker vessel was protected. The throwing off of them is not good for them. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, right, the subversion of roles, rather than heeding God, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. So there's a, there's a curse on relationship up above, strife. There's a curse on the ground. This is toil, fruitless labor. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. And the sweat of your face shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And so there's death. So we have strife and toil and death. The covenant institutions of God, the law of God for the individual, marriage for man and woman, and the raising of children, the church as a community of individuals and households with the word going forth and the keys of discipline being used, and the state to punish wickedness are strife reducers. The covenant institutions are the way of overcoming strife. And they're the way of overcoming toil. It's hard to get stuff done. And if you work by yourself all the time, it's demotivating. Working together, when one of you falls, the other can pick you up. Marriage is a way of having somebody to work with you on all the important stuff. To share the difficulties of life. Church relationship is a way of doing that, where you have covenanted friends. Not just friends that throw you off. Not just friends that use you. Friends that have sworn before God and men. That they will work with you and seek your good. And so these institutions, they help to overcome strife by having mechanisms of discipline to make it so that conflict must be resolved. And they have tools to help it so that you have commitments to seek each other's good. Think about how the diaconate is by itself something that pushes us to see people prospered. You go, I've got to help this person. It becomes a public thing. We've got to help this person. It becomes a public thing. After a while, you go, how do we make it so that they don't need help anymore? How do we help to establish them so that they're in a good position? There's this way in which there's a goad 
to help us to care for each other, to see prospering as opposed to toil and poverty. And so there's mechanisms to fight strife, and there's mechanisms to fight toil, and then we care for each other, we preserve each other, we defend each other, we seek to make it so that we're not always tearing our clothes and pulling out our beards. We try to make it so that there's not a harming of our material selves, a mutual defense of each other, and a willingness to take each other in in the case of danger. This helps to undermine death. Adam called his wife's name Eve, which means life or living, because she was the mother of all living. So Adam here believes this promise. Adam immediately believes the gospel. (coughs) He believes that the promise of God will be fulfilled, that she will have seed, and that that seed will crush the head of Satan. The guilt of these people is established. The grace of God is put forward in the gospel. And now, in believing, the first act of gratitude that Adam gives is a confession that he believes the promises of God by naming his wife living. Because she is the mother of all the living. Living. That's an interesting name to give to somebody who just broke a covenant. And the promise, the threat of that covenant was in the day you eat thereof you will surely die. I'm going to name you living. Spiritual life was given in the context of the threat of spiritual and physical death. This is a resurrection. This is regeneration. Dead men made alive. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Okay, so animal skins, dead animals, animal sacrifice, pointing to the blood of Christ. He covers them in these animal skins, pointing to the covenant of grace and his promise of the imputed righteousness of Christ. These animal skins are given to cover. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Who's he talking to? To become like one of us. This is not the angels. This is to other persons who are God. This is one member of the Trinity talking to the other members of the Trinity. It is necessary because the way in which they became like God was defining good and evil for themselves. The angels don't get that. The angels don't get that. The angels don't get that. They are under law. They're not makers of law. They are under law. And so we have the doctrine of the Trinity right here. Behold, the man has become like one of us. And, you know, the name Elohim is plural. And we have you know, in the very beginning, you know, the spirit hovering over the waters, we have the word of God, we have God saying. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. What would it be if you are cursed, sinful, and immortal. That's hell. That's hell. That's the resurrected state that the reprobate will be in. Jesus comes back, resurrects the dead, judges the reprobate. You're staying in the body. You're not going to die again. You're cursed. So what's happening here is God is preventing hell for the elect. And he is delaying the way that hell will work for the reprobate in the resurrected state until the day of judgment. The delay is for the elect. The reprobate is just going to get worse punishment because of the delay. Verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Go make the non-garden 
garden. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Here is the first appearance of the sword to protect the private property of God from trespass by man. And so what we have is this preventing of the hellish condition for the elect. This is the condition that we are ourselves in. We are dealing with and roaming about the earth, dealing with toil and strife and death and trying to figure out how to deal with it. Marriage is a partnership and church is a partnership where we work together to overcome these things. We need each other. You need your household. You need your children to work on this together. And you need each other in the church to be able to deal with all of these difficulties in the world. And so, what we're called to do is to recognize the order that God has established. And so, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6 establishes for us church offices and the fact that we're called to keep covenant together to maintain peace by going through conflict resolution. And what we're told is that God gives, Christ has given, gifts to each person that are distinct. And those gifts are given so that we can bless each other and serve each other. And officers are specifically given gifts in order to edify the body so that the body will become mature. So in the public worship, there's an equipping of the body so that you can become mature and that you can nourish each other. There's a ministry of each individual member of the church toward each other. And that occurs inside of the household as well. And you get to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. And what you've got is the husband, the wife, children, master, servant. Reverse the last two, servant, master. You have all the household relationships Marriage, children, employee-employer. And those relationships where there's private engagement, there are duties towards each other. You see this laid out in Titus in chapter 1, verse 5, all the way through chapter 2, verse 10. And what you have is, here's the task of elders. Guard the church. It is a garden of God. Keep out heretics. They will destroy Rebuke them, fight them, be courageous, cause them to wish they had not been born. Make them retreat. And then it talks about the individual households. It talks about older women, younger women, older men, younger men. It talks about husbands and wives. It talks about children. And it lays out the duties that exist between employer and employee. And what it's doing is it's saying, create community, guard it, nurture it, defend it, make it so that this can be beautiful. And the call that's given in Titus is for the older women to teach the younger women to be priest-like. Beauty and glory. There's this call to help to make it so that this garden space is beautiful. It's built up. There are beautiful homes. The children are given the nurture. There's this call to be priest-like. So go there real quickly. Go to Titus chapter 2. I'll show you that little verse. Chapter chapter 2, verse 3. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior. That word reverent, you go look it up on any any place you want where it's going to show the Greek. That word reverent has the root word there is priest. It's not the normal word translated as reverent. It's a word there that the root root is priest. Like the word hierarchy is rule, archy is rule. And higher is priest. Okay, it has that higher. It has that root there. And it's saying, let them be priestly in behavior. That priestliness in behavior is the call of older women to help to 
build relationship, to be the ones that help to deal with avoiding the strife. Why is that? Because women have a curse from Genesis chapter 3 that there will be strife in the relationships that are most dear to them with children and with husbands. And so the older women, they are to reduce strife by helping the younger women to learn how to love their husbands and their children. Priestliness rather than strife creator. And men, we are called to love our wives and children and to work with each other and to fight heretics and to build, to make the structure so that it can be beautified. We make the structure so that it can be beautified. You provide covering, you provide protection. So there's place for beauty. So this is a vision of what I think we need to emphasize in terms of building culture in the church and in the home. Garden, city, protected, beautified. Each person understanding what they were made for as men and women and the desire to help each other. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And we're called to help that. And so, single men, you want to get married? Look for the proper head of house in the church first. And seek opportunity to marry a covenant lady. Covenant ladies, serve your patriarch well. Make somebody want to be your patriarch. Use our networks. If for some reason it's not a good fit in our congregation, use your network to look for godly people to help define spouses. Help people to have what they need to build good houses, to work together well in the church, to make men fit for public office, the public officers helping to make the church a place with covering, to guard against false doctrine, to maintain discipline where beauty can grow. Beauty in the church. Beauty in houses. Support for houses that are failing. Help to make new houses. This goes across generations. We will fill the earth. The knowledge of God will fill us. The knowledge of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.